we're sitting here a month ago and to an extent that's like really excited and drunk up this lot of Kool-Aid. <laughs> and I seem to like remember what exactly are we building towards here with Solana or just with like smart contract platforms in general? Like, what are some things that won't change? I thought maybe there's like four words that aren't gonna change. People want speed, they want things that are cheap, they want things that are safe, and they want things that are simple, right? Those are the four latest things that people want and that won't change. This episode is brought to you by Access Protocol. Access Protocol is the best way to get access to premium crypto content without the ads, without the annoying subscriptions that are impossible to cancel. It's crypto native. It's here today. Go check them out. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Lightspeed. Today, we're joined by Wilson and Ryan from Syncrasy Capital. These two guys are prolific investors in the space. Guys, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having us on. Yeah, happy to be here. Yeah, I'm pumped to have you on. I know you're both out of Masari. I do want to get into that later in the show, um, but you now have had your own fun. Has it been about a year and a half now? Yeah, a year and a half. We launched in May 2022. Actually, five years before So, great timing. <laughs> yeah, exciting, guys. Well, I, I, I'm sure you've listened to Lightspeed a few times. We often hit on the Solana themes, and you had a big Solana report that came out, I think, about a month ago. But I do want to start with the news that's happening today. It's January 10th for those listening. Uh, there's a good chance that the Bitcoin spot ETF is going to get approved. Right now, ETH is up, I think, about 8% on the day. Lido is up 20%. Uh, and Bitcoin actually hasn't moved. So it's interesting how like narratives switch, right? Because this whole, like, you're going to sell the news. Is Bitcoin going to pump? Is it going to fall? But it's like the narrative's already switched to, oh, is there going to be a Ethereum ETF now happening? So I want to talk about just like this institutionalization of the crypto space with this ETF and maybe how this shapes your Ethereum thesis. And Ryan, maybe let's start with you. Sure. Yeah, so... I think it's like one of the most exciting events in the history of the industry. So we've been waiting for nearly a decade for the Bitcoin ETF to be approved. Uh, and, you know, while the ETF itself is in, you know, furthering anything about technology or like the adoption of technology, for something like Bitcoin, where the purpose of it is to just hold it, this actually is extremely beneficial to Bitcoin being adopted. Right. So for a long time, like Bitcoin has been this very conservatively designed protocol. It doesn't really change much. Right. It's just this digital goal that just sits there. Um, what's been challenging for people to, to do for, especially for institutions is actually purchase and custody these assets because they don't want to deal with new counterparties and also don't want to deal with managing private keys themselves. So the fact that now you can just use a traditional counterparty like a BlackRock and all that custody is just outsourced and you're spying your three crypto channels. Well, then now you can actually onboard like real institutional players in this asset class. And I think that's actually transformative for uh, the industry. So I think for, for Bitcoin, it's very exciting. And then, you know, naturally, you know, what happens next is all these institutions, they just go down, you know, the, the rankings list and they go to Ethereum. And I'm sure down the road, they'll get to Solana, right? Um, and this is, this is very exciting because this is actually how you get institutions to start at the very least, holding these assets. And then, you know, I think that's usually the, um, you know, the the first thing that people do is they hold the assets. And then before you know it, they're getting way deeper into the crypto economy, which I'm sure we'll discuss. Yeah, I think it's a great uh, step. It's a major step in that direction. Like you're finally crypto getting its foot in the door and getting uh, some legitimacy from these major institutions. And that's really what it was missing for a large part. Like Ryan talked about, it's not really this monumental change in the technology itself, but it's more so the implication of 
how these institutions begin viewing this asset um, and that you have the, you know, the stamp of approval by someone like BlackRock. Like that, I think the perception of Bitcoin being like an investable asset all of a sudden starts to make its rounds and makes it makes it that much more um, appealing to, to everyone out there. So I, and then at the same time, now you have all of these different brokers out there that are going to start advertising this to their clients. You're going to start people setting up like regular inflows on the, on the way in. So all of a sudden you have this net positive, uh, inflows on a regular basis, almost like ETI, uh, like, right, uh, like, uh, index style, um, kind of investment flows going forward. So like that, that it's just again, like foot in the door, like we said. And, um, I, like all of the, like the business for someone like BlackRock, like that, they want to click fees on all of these ETFs all the way down. So Bitcoin's the first one and it's not going to stop from there, especially if there's an opportunity to put fees from other ETFs. So again, it's just, it's just the first step in that direction. Mm. Yeah, that stamp of approval from BlackRock and really all these institutions, I think is just huge. I mean, I'm, I'm already seeing on my Twitter timeline today, people are now talking about the Ethereum ETF, which I have no idea what that timeline would be. And I even saw someone tweet like AVAX ETF coming soon. Um, that one, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how many ETFs are going to pop out of nowhere considering how long it took to get Bitcoin. But I do think this like stamp of approval gives institutions to look at crypto more seriously. And does, does that impact how you think about Ethereum at all? Because like if you go out the smart contract landscape and you think about what else would institutions look at, to me, that's likely Ethereum. And you, and you hear people trying to find Ethereum's narrative right now is ultrasound money. It's the world computer before that. And now you have this restaking narrative, which institutions love yield, right? And I've seen you guys tweet about Lido quite a bit. So I'm curious, can you maybe, I don't know, hit on that thesis and that thought process there? Yeah, so as far as uh, Lido goes, I'll start with that and I can kind of back into uh, the Ethereum thesis. So uh, for us, it's like, I think the, there's like a confluence of catalysts for Ethereum right now. Uh, you mentioned like the ETF. We also have EIP 444. We also have our staking. And these are all just happening more or less on the same timeline. Like ETF for Ethereum, like in Q2, EIP 444 within Q2 as well, if not sooner, restaking. I mean, that's kind of like an ongoing process of eigen kind of rolling out and kind of taking off the safeguards of the system. Uh, so for us, like this kind of all just points back to, to Lido, right? Because these liquid staking protocols, uh, for one, are just kind of like take rate businesses on the smart contract platforms that they exist on. So they're just clipping all the fees and MAV that like the system is earning uh, that goes back to validators. So as activity inflex on these smart contract platforms for a number of reasons, and we all know this as class reflexive, as price goes up, activity on these chains goes up. So it's obviously good for, you know, these, these kind of take rate businesses on like the smart contract platforms. Uh, then restaking or staking kind of supercharges the yields for, uh, these, uh, these, for stakers, right? So not only do you get this enhanced yield from all the activity that's happening on chain and inflation rewards, but now you'll also start to get an increased yield from providing services or providing economic security to other like kind of use cases, whether it be different middleware, like oracles or bridges, or even like new blockchains themselves, right? And then the kicker is that all these new, uh, you know, protocols we're launching through like an eigenlayer will likely be airdropping their tokens to incentivize users as well. So it's like supercharged yield for Ethereum stakers. And naturally, as you know, with Lido being the, the dominant player, that's you know, damn near a monopoly. That's why everyone, so many people complain about how dominant 
Lido is. Uh, it's obviously, you know, really exciting for, for Lido. And then to, to go back to Ethereum, well, I think it's just, you know, I think for us, like the, the whole staking component isn't as critical to the thesis around uh, Ethereum. I think it's just like a basic feature that every proof of stake blockchain has, uh, which is great. Uh, that being said, because it is kind of like first mover all of these smart contract platforms, it, in the same way that Bitcoin is first mover in the entire asset class, it's kind of just naturally one great mind share within uh, globally and especially among institutions. So yeah, like because it is like the second asset that people go to after Bitcoin, now the narrative out there is going to be like, well, here's this you know potentially superior asset to Bitcoin. It has this native yield, which is great. Um, and it's a more functional uh, platform, right? So that, that's how we think about it. I think just, just Lucy speaking, I don't know if there's anything you want to add, uh, Wilson. I think the only thing I'll add is just kind of to top off that last point, which is that um, the one of the, the critiques of Bitcoin is that it, it lacks any sort of intrinsic value. And I mean, we can argue about that. Uh, and there's some hand-wavy stuff, but I, I think the point is that it the investment thesis for Ethereum is far clearer. Um, and ours, or in smart contract platforms in general, just proof of stake chains, like the fact that they have a capture of fees and activity on the network. Um, and so as a, an institution looking at the space, you're looking at, you finally have multiple ETFs approved. Uh, which one are you going to look at as you're evaluating makes the most sense to you based on what you've been previously investing in. And so that would just naturally tend to, for them to look at some of these smart contract platforms over something that is really just digital gold. Yeah, I think maybe something I'll add there, because uh, Wilson, you brought up a good point, is that the name cryptocurrencies, this is actually long with something I would share with some you know friends that were skeptical about the asset class, is that the, the word cryptocurrency is actually a misnomer mm-hmm. for the industry, because not everything here is attempting to be a currency. So I think a lot of people, when they're looking at this asset class and they see Bitcoin, they're like, oh, why do we need like 10,000 different currencies? This is ri- ridiculous. And at the same time, even if like, you know, they kind of get over the line on Bitcoin, they're like, well, you know, why is it that people who are not macro investors need to care about this asset class? Well, the reality is there's so much more to this asset class beyond just money. And I think what Ethereum offers for um, institutional investors is like, well, you know what? You don't need to buy into this whole digital gold thesis um, at all. You can just look at this as a technology platform and those applications being built here. And that is the way that you actually want to play the asset class. It's like, it's like growth, it's technology. So it actually like, I think fits the criteria for like a certain type of investor that doesn't actually want to invest in Bitcoin, which is good because then we're just onboarding more investors or a great diversity of investors into the asset class. That's well said. That's actually a really good framing too. And someone not from crypto asked me about, you know, why crypto has any value or like what it does. Cause everyone asks about Bitcoin and then you get, it's hard to explain crypto when they have no context at all. But the currency part is so confusing, I think. So that's mm-hmm. a really, really good point. I'm, I'm curious as I go to your website and it says hedge fund. Um, but something either Ryan or Wilson, you guys have been tweeting out about is MakerDAO. And I've actually seen MakerDAO get a narrative lately. Um, some people are trying to make like middle of the bell curve memes come back. Um, that's because it has cash flow. Like they actually have revenue. And, you know, right now with yields high, they're making pretty good revenue from that. And also when you have speculation in the market, people are going to be borrowing from MakerDAO and you get even more yield from that. Um, 
So I'm curious, like, do you invest in MakerDAO? Because it's a hedge fund. I think if you guys may be getting in and out of positions. So like when you're looking at DeFi to invest in, uh, is MakerDAO something that's attractive? Or like, how do you even underwrite these projects when you're a hedge fund versus like, oh, MakerDAO has great revenue. It's going to be great in five years. So I'm just going to invest and hold. Yeah. So I think the way to think about it is that, yes, like structurally, we're a hedge fund. Although philosophically, for many positions, we do think with like a venture mindset. So there are positions that we've bought, uh, you know, basically a year ago at this point, and have, and have not sold. Right, Maker being one of them, uh, we bought like in you know, January of last year, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and like we're underwriting on a two to three year time horizon. And to be honest, it continues to compound. This is something that we can hold for a much longer time. Right. Same thing with Solana, which we also shared a public thesis on. Uh, like that's how we think about it. And we're taking the goal is to take you know concentrated positions into what we believe will be like the secular winners of the crypto economy. Uh, or another way of thinking about it is, you know, we think that the next fangs are emerging this asset class. We have the opportunity to buy all these basically down 70, 80, 90% from all-time highs and basically just ride them for the next decade, right? So as far as like the, you know, the maker, um, you know, thesis. So yes, yeah, so definitely the yields that you're getting on uh, on um only the treasuries right now are exciting. And that was something that was exciting in the bear market where it's like, it was very hard to discern what was valuable in the bear market. But here you did have this one project that was bringing in, you know, nine figures of, of revenue and actually accelerating that in, in the bear market. So that was like a very attractive place kind of to spark capital. From here on out, um, you know, one is a story. Well, it's like, yeah, you know what? This whole, you know, yield play is is nice, but there's a chance that yields go down over next year. So you don't really get growth from that. Really what you're playing for is like the growth of, or the expansion of like the die supply. And how does that happen? Well, it happens through, uh, for one, just demand for die. And that can be to use as collateral to part out the, the Ethereum financial system. And SDI already is starting to be, and SDI is like basically just like a yield-bearing version of DAI. Like SDI is already starting to be used as, you know, collateral on, you know, perps exchanges, right? Starting to be used as collateral in lending markets, right? Um, so that's kind of one way that can expand. Another way is just, well, Maker's core business and like this first business ever got into was just lending, right? So as like there's more activity on chain, as people just want to speculate more, people are just going to borrow more. And that's actually how the supply has grown historically in bull markets is people just want to lever up on their assets. So that's another way it kind of grows. And then the final way is really just around uh, Endgame. And Endgame, you know, I think for for the longest time, I was was actually a a bear on. And the reason why is because, you know, it first came out, it just kind of felt like it was this very, like, messy and kind of, you know, ill-thought-out vision for what Maker would, would become. But then as you track it over time, what seemed to happen is that what actually got implemented into the endgame plan was far more muted than what was in that original proposal and far more sensible. It actually did incorporate some community feedback, whereas on the outside, it was like, all right, you know, Rune is going off the rails and like he's like a tyrant and that's not actually what's happening in reality. And what's exciting with endgame is that, well, you have a new governance structure. Uh, you have new protocols that will be launching as sub-DAOs. 
And these sub-DAOs will be providing, you know, airdrops to maker holders, to, to die holders, uh, and just being, and it's really pushing, you know, adoption of DAI uh, across like Ethereum and, and hopefully L2s as well. Maybe the last thing I'll say, uh, just because, you know, you kind of uh, mentioned this earlier, hinted at it when we were saying like we're a hedge fund. But one thing I also think it's exciting as well, just to be honest, is like the redenomination of MKR. <laughs> there is like a, a serious unit bias that people have in this asset class, which is why to an extent some of the doll points have done well beyond the fact that it's funny is like, you can dream that something that's like one cent is going to go to a dollar. And Maker for a long time has been this like, you know, expensive coin at like $2,000, right? Well, when it does this big, this token redomination, it now be like less than, you know, a cent or, or, or two, right? So that's also something to get excited about um, just for, from like a narrative perspective. I'll add to the, uh, for the audience there that for Maker, if you're not following it closely, they're doing a rebrand of both like Maker and Die the token uh, to make it a bit more memeable. And in that they're also doing what you could call a stock split um, so that you have this unit bias for like no one wants to buy a token that costs $1,000. But once you do a stock split and it now looks like it costs $1, you're more likely to buy it. And it sounds dumb, but it's actually how psychology works. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Ryan, I think you said that ETH is the center of the crypto ecosystem. Is that still the case in this L2 future? So I think I think ETH is the center of the Ethereum ecosystem, uh, <laughs> but as far as like the crypto economy, I mean this this probably dovetails nice into like this lot of thesis. But yeah, I, I don't think that the smart contract platform landscape is winner take all. I think it's winners take all, and there are, uh, I think there's a sufficient amount of trade offs in the design space of smart contract platforms that make it so that a single uh, technical stack can actually serve every single use case effectively. Therefore, there's room for more than one, right? So that's, I guess, the view on whether Ethereum is still the center of the crypto economy. Like, I guess, yes, for now it is, but, you know, long-term, I think that, you know, obviously competitors like Solana will start to, like, win share over. And that's good because this is, I think it's expanding the pot, mm -hmm. right? Like the pie is going to grow and expanding the pie. As far as like um, ETH being the center of like the Ethereum ecosystem, I think that'll continue. I think that there is a ton of buy-in, not only from roller communities, but also just more practically speaking, there are so many new protocols coming out to like sort of solidify Ethereum dominant or ETH dominance in the Ethereum ecosystem, like Eigenlayer. But yeah, so it'll continue to be like the most important asset in the ecosystem. So ETH will be the asset that's, you know, collateralizing a lot of these, you know, middleware protocols. So Eigenlayer, ETH will be the asset that's used to pay for gas on the rollups, right? I think that it's pretty clear to me that, you know, ETH is still going to be the most important asset in on Ethereum. No question. There's still some path dependency there that with Ethereum having as large of a, a user base and holder base, um, the level of developer talent within that ecosystem is going to continue to push it forward. Um, I, I think right now it's definitely in a bit of a rut where most of this L2 ecosystem, which was supposed to be not only like extensions of Ethereum, but start to expand on what could be possible. They really only launch mainly vanilla EVM forks. We I, like where it is right now, I think you're going to start to see more experimentation at the VM level uh, along L2s um, that could start to expand it from there. But as we thought, as we touched on, like there is, we, we've really only tapped into the surface of what could be possible within blockchain systems. Um, 
And to really grow the pie there, I think exploring different, different variant VMs, different architectures is something that's really, really, really going to be interesting. And it's understandable why we're continuing to go back to the EVM and what we know, uh, because it's, it's simple. It's easy. There's definitely money flowing into those systems. Um, and you know, there's a, there's a lot of uh, familiarity with that. But, um, as these, as the needs, uh, grow and as we're starting to see with Solana, the, the want for much faster, cheaper use cases. And then the expansion of like applications into ones that are, that are branching into almost like a, traditionally off chain use cases like payments and DPIN. Um, they start to center around something that could be something like Solana because that's just not readily available on something like Ethereum today. Um, so yeah, there's still very much a, a gap now that's, that's needed where some of these other newer architectures can step in. Yeah, well said. Quick break to tell you about Access Protocol, the easiest and best way to stay up to date on what's happening in crypto by following your favorite publishers. You can do all of it without a subscription, without having to worry about ads. And we all know subscriptions. How many do you have? 10, 20? Can you cancel it? It's all a mess. Well, Access Protocol solves this and they do it in a crypto native way. They have over 60 publishers that include CoinGecko, The Block, CryptoSlate, and a whole long list of independent creators. So how it works is you find your favorite publishers and you stake the ACS token. That's the access token. And once you stake, you have access to all that creator's content without the hassle of ads or subscriptions that you can't cancel and you don't know how many you have. Access Protocol already has over 225,000 users that are finding new creators, that are reading content, and even receiving NFTs from these creators. Because one of the cool things with Access Protocol is that these publishers, they can know who their subscribers are. They can make it where, okay, maybe we'll do an in-person an event or maybe we'll do an nft drop and we'll do it only to our most loyal stakers aka readers early 2024 they're even releasing v2 it's crypto native it's on solana and it's an awesome product but a link in the show notes to the hub uh it's the easiest way to get started so go check them out today quick break to tell you about an upcoming event i promise you don't want to miss it's blockworks biggest and best institutional conference called das london it's a two-day event happening in london this march we're going to have over 700 institutions 130 speakers and a couple thousand of us all under one roof crypto is in a position for the first time to actually onboard these institutions and they're showing up we have companies from blackrock to visa launching real products in the space we have the real world asset narrative taking off we have things like payments that have been exponentially growing and then we have things like deep happening in the solana ecosystem there's a ton of capital right now in this institutional space is going to be coming on chain it's going to completely change the industry whether you are an institution or you're a retail user or you just want to learn more about what's going on in the space this conference is for you you're going to be able to meet some of the best and smartest people in the space the speaker lineup is absolutely incredible and you'll get to hang out with me but the best part is you actually get 10 percent off your ticket if you use lightspeed 10 when checking out i put a link in the show notes um i recommend buying this today because one you'll forget about it two these ticket prices go up every single month so anyways, I hope to see you there. Now, let's get back to the show. Okay, so let's get into Solana then. So I was actually talking to somebody yesterday, and uh, I think they were quoting Jeff Bezos or something. And then it made me think of, he often says, it's not like what's going to change, but what's not going to change. Like you hear that all the time. He's like, people are going to want, you know, ch- cheaper costs, more options and faster delivery. Like, I know that's not going to change. That's kind of true with Solana. People are going to want cheaper fees and, you know, faster transactions. That's always mm-hmm. going to be the case, no matter what. Um, so that's like your really uh, lizard brain Solana thesis that I'd have for you right there. But I'm curious what you guys have to say, because in December, you had a big report on Solana that said back in Q2 2023 that your fund uh, accumulated a large position in Seoul, which at that time, I don't, you know, you don't have to say what your entry price was, but it was sitting around $20 at the time. Uh, it's sitting around $100 today, I think. So obviously doing pretty good so far. Um, what is that big thesis there? Wilson, do you maybe want to start for us? I'm actually, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to kick it over to Ryan because like the, the thought of the, uh, 
like what Jeff Bezos was saying, um, what won't change over the long time was something we actually just talked about, uh, not too long ago. Um, and so Ryan, Ryan kind of kicked that conversation off. And so I'll, I'll hand it over to him and then I can stand on it from there. Yeah. It, it is funny you, you mentioned that this is almost like a slight divergence, but, uh, you know, we're sitting here, I think maybe like a month ago and to an extent, just like really excited and kind of drunk off this lot of Kool-Aid <laughs> and I see it to like, really is like, remember, okay, like what exactly are we building towards here? with Solana or just with like smart contract platforms in general, like what are some things that won't change? And I thought maybe there's like four words that aren't going to change. Like people want uh, speed. They want things that are cheap. They want things, like you said, uh, they want things that are safe and then they want things that are simple. Right. Um, and like, those are the four latest things that people want and that won't change. So like, how is Solana addressing those like four you know, endpoints end versus like Ethereum. Well, it's definitely focusing a lot more, at least initially, on like cheap and fast and and um, and simple. And to an extent, like the integrated stack or integrated design addresses the simplicity of the system, not only for users that are experimenting applications, but also for developers that are building. And then the speed and cost, like that is... You know, and we can get into you know, more of this, I guess, as we kind of the thesis, but you know, that, that is explicitly what Solana was uh, attempting to do from like the genesis of like, how do we make sure that software doesn't get away in the hardware? How do you make sure that, you know, to an extent that, um, you know, the system almost functions as efficiently as like a single node, uh, which was kind of like the original, one of the original design goals of, uh, of why you'd want to, you know, really optimize like the data propagation of the network, right? Um, so yeah, that, that was so slightly diverged, but yeah, that that's like something we explicitly thought about like recently, uh, which I think is like a good kind of north star for like what we're building towards here and what's important. And just to, just to expand off of that, when we talk about safe, we're talking about potential security of the network, and really that's just kind of like a nebulous concept still. Like we, we don't really understand like what is that threshold of security that's necessary for now we're going to have? Is it a certain level of economic security? Is it decentralization of the nodes? Is it, is it some uh, amalgamation of that? Probably, probably, yeah, it's some combination. And, but I think the one thing that matters more than anything is perception of security. Um, where something like Ethereum and Bitcoin have already been talked about that as that being like, uh, their leading design philosophy. And so it's kind of memed into that point. But then you also have the aspect of, um, the SEC coming out and not declaring Bitcoin, Ethereum explicitly securities. You have BlackRock launching the Bitcoin ETF and announcing, um, you know, exploring an Ethereum ETF. Um, those kind of stamps of approvals, again, going back to that concept kind of gives us illusion of security and safe. And that's all to say that. These are some things that can be improved and are likely heading in that direction for a lot of these other networks as well. Um, so it's not just something that's just exclusive to, to Bitcoin and Ethereum. Um, so that was one thing. And the other one is like simplicity is, uh, you got, you kind of like, obviously like those are the four main things and you can break it down into little subsections. Obviously the, the integrated side, uh, removes all the complexity of trying to pick which rollup you have to launch on or design for portability of your application or launching multiple instances of your other application on, on different 
chains, which just increases the, the resources you put into it, uh, that, like cognitive uh, overload on that end for the developer side. Um, so you're simplifying like development process on that end. The other end, um, yeah, like launching a new VM in a sense with like the SVM, um, obviously it's been around for three years now, but much, much, uh, lower in the totem, totem pole in terms of like EVM and in terms of adoption. Um, it's, it's going to take a lot more to get the developer tools up to a point where people can be very, very comfortable and, and jump in easily to start developing on this. Um, cause it's just a completely different architecture. But it's something that we touched on in the thesis, which is that as the incentives uh, to build on the platform continue to grow, so too will the incentive to fix a lot of these remaining problems um, or issues or, or any sort of developer hurdles. And you're really starting to see that um, come into play with the continuing advancement of like the anchor development framework or the, what everything that's going into the SBM 2.0 changes that the, that Solana team has been been talking about. So, um, yeah, I, I think as you start to see, like, those are the four main things. And then from there, how are smart contract platforms optimized for those four main things? Right. And then maybe a follow-up there on safety. So I think this is actually an important point, at least in my personal journey with Solana, is that I think the other three were quite clear from Solana for, like, a long time. The safety was always my biggest concern. And it was my biggest concern because I thought safety was among the most important properties of these systems if we want to build like mission critical monitoring financial applications. And in the beginning, I thought that, uh, you know, perhaps like this lot of community wasn't taking safety seriously enough. And like, it wasn't just about uptime issues. It was more so about how the network first started. Right. And obviously, like, I've, I've kind of evolved since then, but like, when, I, when we first followed Solana and Brenda, I think Wilson and I have kind of been with it throughout his entire lifespan, you know, what was kind of irking me? Well, in contrast to these more like grassroots type communities that were Bitcoin and Ethereum, this was like a venture backed startup with like a corporate corporation that was actually leading development, right? Eventually, FTX and Sam Bankman fraud come in and they're like really, jumpstart an ecosystem, structuring a lot of like the token economic designs for like these different protocols are coming out. A lot of what was there on Solana at first was just kind of like low effort copy and paste forks of like what was on Ethereum. So when I looked at it, I was like, you know what? This kind of, and then another thing too, because it was like backed in this very non-traditional manner and because it was being driven in, developed was being driven in more centralized fashion, and there was kind of like these kind of like single like figureheads that were, you know, really spearheading the community uh, in design of like all like mission critical protocols. I thought that, you know what, uh, that was enough to make me skeptical that this could eventually be a platform that provides enough safety. And then it also made it easier to accept the common wisdom at the time that what was actually uh, enabling Solana to scale wasn't any kind of technical innovation, but just simply jacking up the hardware requirements. Now, what changed, and to an extent, this is, I think in hindsight, will be one of, we'll look at it as like one of the best things that happened to a lot of community was FTS collapsing in a way, because it kind of purged all of these, you know, mercenaries that were there. Uh, it kind of, I think, and already, like, I think the community was starting to move beyond SBF's influence, 
But it kind of, at least for the public, uh, really made it clear that, okay, like SPF is not running the show here. And then what happened for myself is like, you know what, really started to dive into like the technical architecture in Solana. And what I really started to appreciate was twofold. Uh, one is that it's not just jacking up the hardware requirements that enables you to get higher through Corpus Lana. It's having significantly more efficient data propagation and also having parallel execution. And you actually get more transaction throughput for a dollar invested in hardware than you would on like some competing systems. So there actually is like genuine innovation here of like how do you actually get more throughput, which is one. And another thing is this more like philosophical is what actually uh, adds security to a blockchain, right? And how, how do you actually increase the number of full nodes? Well, is people don't run full nodes because they're, they're cheap. They run them because there's demands from full nodes. So as activity on Solana rises, so too will the full node count rise. And that's actually the path to getting a large number of full nodes uh, running for Solana. And mind you, the quality of who's running those full nodes also matters. Like, if it's just like, you know, some random person running a full node, does that contribute to this economic, to the security of Solana equally as a sophisticated node operator? I would say no. Right. But so if you have like a large number of sophisticated node operators running nodes for Solana, then I think that actually leads to like a, a, a more decentralized system over time. And like once those two ideas were like kind of like engraved in my head of like, all right, you know what? There actually is genuine innovation here. That's why this is a scalable system. And actually this whole full node discussion isn't as isn't as uh, you know terrible as it seems on the surface. And there actually is like a path towards this going centralized. And that's great. And then the challenge on top is that the end game for all these blockchains mm -hmm. anyways is to actually enable you know, things like data availability sampling and have like lines so that it's very easy for the end user to cheaply verify the state of the chain anyways, right? So it actually seems like this concern that I had about safety initially, which was one of the reasons why I wasn't excited about Solana, is not actually an issue, but Solana is actually doing enough work to address those challenges uh, long-term. And I think that's where I kind of got over the line personally in my personal journey. Uh, and why I know to an extent, like, we're able to get the conviction back. What a sales pitch. <laughs> that was great. I agree. That That is that is so well said. And I think that's what 99% of people also kind of missed or saw back when you had SBF. And I also agree that SBF going away um, was very, very positive. And Chris Berniski will say the same thing. He's like, I just didn't want to get involved back then. Um, but I saw that they actually had real innovation happening there. And I think Anatoly has been a really big part of that because you have to have these leaders to almost have a shelling point to get around. And I think Solana's had that. And it was Anatoly, but you have Armani and Vibu, who I think when we talked about like, what do users always want? And Ryan, you listed like five items or four items, one of those being speed and, you know, low cost. I think if you added a fifth one there, it's entertainment. And I think crypto and Solana has done an awesome job with that. And like Vibu is like leading that uh, with Drip. Drip is like an NFT protocol on, on uh, Solana. So I think that's something people always want. And I'm not saying this is like only something Solana has, but it's definitely more fun, in my opinion. And they lean into that. And, and you know, some people say it's the consumer chain. Some say it's for DeFi. It's general purpose. I don't know how you guys see it. But um, yeah, I, I think it's kind of exciting. I think the talk on that last point there is like, yeah, the uh, I think Solana gets is a little underappreciated for the different kind of apps that are being built in it right now. Like I, I think any smart contract platform is going to have some sort of DeFi plumbing, 
it's going to have to be there. So in terms of that, uh, everyone's going to, everyone's going to be part of that. We were starting to see like Ethereum shift more into like these, this platform for high value transactions or high, high value financial transactions. Where Solana doesn't get maybe enough appreciation is that it's really becoming the home for two of the more critical applications evolving in, in, uh, the industry. Uh, one being payments and the other one being deepen. And why I see these things as being so critical is like there are, they are these kind of like off chain components that are bringing people and their wealth on chain. So all of a sudden you're having people use payments on Solana. They're storing their wealth on chain. Not maybe in some ways not noticing they're, they're using a blockchain, but at least when you, as, as soon as you start having your wealth on chain, that also all of a sudden makes you want to explore what else is out there. Um, and that is really kind of like the missing component. We've been talking about like, what are, what's like the onboarding process for users and why has that been so difficult? Well, outside of like maybe like the yield opportunities and the investing opportunities, there hasn't been like a main driver for people to want to bring their wealth on chain and where something where they're either doing running payments through any sort of like crypto based, uh, front end, um, or like they're, uh, spinning up, uh, hardware devices. And earning incentives on chain, um, for these various deep end networks. All of a sudden, like that means more of the wealth is going to be on chain. They're going to start using, uh, DeFi applications as well. And then as more wealth gets stored on chain, you might start to see them looking at like, well, I want to start diversifying, uh, my portfolio that's on chain. And that's where you get demand for stuff like real world assets. Um, so like that, like having those two components and Solana being the home. Uh, no, we're like the really like the potential home for them uh, with like payments, the integration with Visa or, or the like experimentation with Visa and, and Shopify there. Um, and then uh, Dpen, obviously, you have the leader with Helium uh, migrating over there, now Render migrating over there. And I see a couple other spinning up as well, like Hive Mapper, um, where a lot of the innovation experimentation is happening on Solana. And that's mainly due, to, like we said before. It, it's fast and cheap components, but a lot of the other uh, innovations like simplicity is something that is very clear from the standpoint of like why Helium wanted to migrate over to Solana so they didn't have to spend as much resources on their on their L1. So I think like that component is like, hey, what kind of applications are going to be built on here and how does that translate down the line into like people actually using uh, more crypto native products? I think there's also... Dovetails into one of my favorite discussions around these smart contract platforms, which is like this whole concept of the monetary premium. It's like it's like a meme in, in a way, and there's a sense of like exceptional exceptionalism in the Ethereum community about the properties of ETH the asset, and that like it's like impossible for any of these other smart contract platforms or the native assets to achieve those same properties, and. I had to like check my biases on this for a long time because it's something that I almost, you know, accepted as well is that this is not possible. But like what's changed is that, well, yes, maybe. And, and to be fair, Ethereum has optimized itself well by prioritizing safety and security number one for these kind of monetary and financial applications. Uh, right. But I think what's kind of changed for myself is that, well, if you really just kind of strip out the whole like memetics of it, the basic properties that enable Ethereum to be this monetary store of value are shared among every other smart contract platform, right? So the native asset being the premier store of value in the system, 
Same thing for Solana. It captures all the MEV, captures fees, right? It's has its asset with the lowest counterparty risk. Therefore, it's used as collateral in DeFi. The Sol is used as a medium exchange for gas payments. It's used as unit accounts price NFTs. These are properties that every single smart contract platform has. And in fact, every single blockchain has, right? Because you can also just zoom out and be like, okay, well, what makes like Bitcoin special as well? It's the fact that you can store um, with no counterparty risk an arbitrary amount of wealth with a private key. And you can send it across the world like instantly. And you can divide it up uh, as much as you want, right? Like these properties, every single native asset of a blockchain has. There's nothing special about anyone. In fact, I think the only thing that actually makes a difference, if you can accept that premise, that these proper, that 99% of properties are shared among every blockchain, the only thing that's actually different is just what is actually being adopted. Because if you actually get the adoption and there's actually activity on your blockchain, you know what? All those properties become stronger, right? So if there's a ton of activity, say, in Solana, well, you know what? It's going to be used as a medium exchange more than any other native asset in the industry. If there's more activity on Solana DeFi, then Solana's going to be used as collateral more than any other asset. And you kind of go down the list of all these different activities that people associate as monster premium, and they're almost all tied to adoption. So adoption is like the number one thing that all these different systems need to be focusing on. And like, yes, well, you know, there are different ways that you can, you know, engineer around, you know, making these properties stronger, like making your token a little bit more deflationary or making inflation a little bit like a lower, like that doesn't actually move the needle in the long run. It's, it's all about adoption. Um, so yeah, that's another way I think about kind of like the difference between what applications they serve. It's like, yeah, like there, there is a difference, but like in the long run, there's going to be overlap. And mm-hmm. there's no reason why Solana can also serve those mission applications as well, even if it's starting from, you know, maybe like a different starting point. That's really well said. One thing I'd like to get back to on Solana is to get a little bit more um, practical or get more down in the details is in the report that you had, I think you compared Solana today to maybe Ethereum in 2020 from like the DeFi renaissance that is happening in some ways. How do you view investing in individual projects in Solana? Because obviously there's Sol, really easy to understand. Um, Solana hasn't had a lot of tokens. They have had a few in the past, but now we're seeing more and more points programs, but also token launches. Uh, one of the big ones was Jito, which I think went to 10,000 wallets and like the minimum airdrop was about $15,000. So it's a pretty good airdrop for everybody. Jito, which is very similar to Lido in many ways, except it's even... You could say it has more value potentially because it's like a built-in flashbots within it as well, right? So they have the MEV side. It actually had a higher FDV than Lido did, which had you know much higher um, adoption and LTV. But everything's based on future flows. What I'm curious though is, I think Gito got above three dollars. It's back to one fifty. That's narratives moving fast, and also maybe just a repricing. As more tokens launch on Solana, I think it's going to be more confusing where you actually invest because it used to just be like, I want exposure to Solana, I'll buy Sol. And then it was just like, just Gito. Well, then what happens when Jupiter has an airdrop? And then you have this like diffusion of attention. So I'm curious, when you're thinking about what to invest in Solana, is it looking at what happened in Ethereum land? Like, oh, the DEXs, those exploded in the in 2020. So I want to go to Solana and invest in the DEXs. Or is it more, you have unique things like Metaplex versus Deepin? I'm just curious how you guys think about that. 
Yeah. So maybe one high level framing and then I'll go from there. So we think it's like, this is like a massive opportunity investing in this lawn ecosystem. When I zoom out on the asset class, if you were to survey majority investors in the industry, whether they're individuals or institutions and ask them, you know, what percentage of your portfolio is allocated to Ethereum or the Ethereum ecosystem? I think in many cases, it'll be very high, like 50%, if not more. So I think the industry structurally is still very overweight Ethereum. And over time, if we're correct, and these other alternative ecosystems do have like a rightful place on like the throne, then there will be a shift in capital flows to these ecosystems. And that's not just we limit it to Solana. It's going to limit to, it's just going to include all these applications on Solana. So that's a framing. As far as like what like excites us within the ecosystem, we start from like a first principles basis. And I think a good example of this is, you know, Jupiter. The corollary for Jupiter on, on Ethereum would be something like a one inch. One inch is not as exciting as Jupiter is on Solana. And I think one of the reasons why is, well, for one, in like this roll-up economy uh, where liquidity can be fragmented among all this disparate block space, an aggregator is just going to be far less efficient at routing your order than if you're doing an integrated system. It's a deal with bridging, right? Like there's like so many different liquidity pools after tap. It can actually get to the point where it's actually more expensive to use the aggregator than just to go to the rope and buy it on a single, uh, you know, DEX. And then same thing, even just on Ethereum main chain, well, so much of liquidity that was being tapped was just in a Uniswap pool. In many cases, you were just better off going directly to the Uniswap pool and just buying from there because it actually be cheaper. So like the, this, the cost, I think, was actually prohibitive towards like those aggregators actually getting meaningful adoption. Um, whereas on Solana, what's well, just like, you know what? Like this is actually where like an aggregator would thrive, right? Because there is like this parallel execution, because there's a cheaper cost. And you can tap into all these liquidity pools. Like that is actually like a, a much more superior product on Solana, and actually far more investable on Solana than it is on Ethereum. So that's kind of one example of like a first principles basis. And then I think another thing that also excites us as well is that uh, you know beyond the fact that we're starting to see like unique. So one thing I mentioned before is how you know back maybe two years ago a lot of the leading project was kind of copy paste of what was on Ethereum, and now you're actually starting to see like more like like actually like differentiated projects that are actually taking advantage of like the unique design of Solana. And I think what these projects are also doing is kind of taking more strategically like the learnings of how competition played out in Ethereum mm-hmm. and actually use that to inform their roadmaps and like how they actually build the businesses. So one trend that I think we've observed is that it seems like a lot of the category of leaders in Solana uh, tend to um, actually be playing in multiple markets at once. So one, one name you mentioned is that uh, Gito. But Gito is not just like a liquid sync protocol like Lido. It's also like an MEV infrastructure like Flashbox, right? And perhaps it could also be, you know, restaking infrastructure as well down the road. That's like three products in Ethereum rolled up into one. And I think there's like a couple of examples like this that are, that are kind of like taking that same approach. Um, another thing, you know, kind of to mention like the first principles no Metaplex, there is no corollary on Ethereum because it's just ERC721, which is just like a, you know, it's like a, a standard. Whereas for uh, Solana, like this is like a, a program that like a team developed and 
you know, it can monetize that program itself. Um, so maybe that's just like one high level for, I don't know if there's anything you want to add, Wilson. Yeah, you could, you, you definitely mentioned the two that I was thinking about as well. Um, I think the only thing to add is where like the, in something like Jupiter, we haven't really seen aggregation theory play out on Ethereum. And really, why is the case? And it kept coming back to the fact like it's just a really excessive cost to um, paying all these different contracts in, in a single con- in a single transaction. So that just ultimately led people to just continue to use Uniswap because it was cheaper and then it had deeper liquidity. And then you had the DEX network, network effects uh, work its magic. And so now, not, you know, not many people have really migrated away from from Uniswap. With Jupiter, because everything is so cheap, they can continue to be that front end for Solana. And at the same time, like as more markets get added to the network, that just expands what Jupiter can offer as well. So it's one of those things where like we might actually see aggregation theory play out. Uh, it just took a different, uh, architecture and a cheaper, faster network to enable that. Um, and then, yeah, like, I mean, it's fascinating to see how a lot of these, um, DeFi protocols um, on Solana are really learning from Ethereum, Ethereum's past. Um, cause you, you've seen like one of the logical things when we were looking at Eigenlayer as well is like, but it seems natural that they want to have some sort of liquid staking token, uh, for all of their, uh, restaked ETH as well, because people would want liquidity on that. But that would, that would place them in, uh, in direct competition with someone like Lido that already had a, a massive lead. And, uh, and what seems to be like a winner take most market. Um, well, now you have Solana within its early stage to really figure a lot of the projects to figure out, hey, this is just the logical extension of everything that we're building here. And instead of like trying to do it more piecemeal, uh, we're able to bring it all together at once. And that just almost in the end makes it a more simplified experience for users. I haven't thought about this a lot, so uh, we'll see if this comes out coherently. But it is interesting to see that on Ethereum, you had this money Legos concept where everybody's going to be like, I'm just a lending protocol, I'm just a DEX. And then you did have this vertical integration where you start saying like, no, I'm going to have a stable coin and I also do lending and borrowing and now I might even do perps. Um, so they're definitely going for that, right? You're, you're, it's a clear uh, trend. And then in Solana, you're starting to see a little bit of that. Uh, you see it from Jupiter, who now has a perps product. I think Jupiter mm-hmm. is like the best protocol at shipping product. And when I say shipping product, like not only what it does behind the scenes, but how it looks and the features that they do. Like they have a good product manager that's not swimming in the pool all day. Um, but, but I also think you could say that it, it does already look a little bit more centralizing in the sense that like Jupiter is in a clear position to almost keep adding more products. And I'm going to keep going to Jupiter because I think it's a great experience. And then you have Jito, which is really great at liquid staking. Now, they're not the leading liquid staking product, I don't think. Uh, that's Marinade. They're about neck and neck. But then they also have the Flashbots. And then if they, you know, they have StakeNet, which I think in some ways might lead to this like restaking protocol. I'm not really sure if those are connected. Um, and that probably offers the best integrated experience. But then do you really want one protocol almost owning all that? And I think Jito, just like with StakeNet, they're trying to make it in the most decentralized way possible. But um, I don't know. It's just interesting to see how Solana is already has this aggregation theory kind of playing out with these two protocols and it's they're killing it and that's really good but in some ways i could see how people would push back and say well, like uh no you don't want only one project to control all that but you're seeing people in ethereum try to do the same thing it's just not working yet <laughs> right right and i think at the end of the day the only reason why people are concerned about single i think there's there's two reasons that people are concerned about like a single protocol say controlling a large amount of assets or uh, facilitating a large amount of activity uh, one is, I think, 
just simple smart contract risk. So for example, you had a single like liquid staking protocol that was managing the entire validator set for like a blockchain or maybe like 70, 80%, like this middle from majority. And the concern, even if like there was, you know, perfect governance with the system is that they're going to use a bug. And like, that's systemic at that point. And I think that's like a valid concern. The other one is around just like the governance of it. Like how do we actually make decisions? You know, for example, with LidoDAO, like how do we actually onboard new validators? How do we actually manage the flow of capital coming to the system and allocate to validators? Like that is, that is like a challenging problem. Um, that I think could be like addressed or mitigated over time. I know like for LidoDAO, for example, there's like a whole dual governance proposal where you would have you know, ETH holders that are stakes through LidoDAO that would actually have a say in governance, like veto rights. Right? So there's different ways you can like work around it that they can mitigate those. But yeah, I think that the bigger thing, like I said, I don't think there's any way of getting around is just the, the hit more contract risk. Um, now to be fair, you know, this is something that I think can only be proven over time is like how safe a smart contract is, right? It's almost like the way of thinking about securing this industry is like not only, you know, what is like, what is like observed about it, but like practically speaking, like over the course of some time, it's like a function of time, like how much it, like is it, is it being secure? So one thing that makes like Bitcoin so exciting is that, yeah, you know what? Like this thing's been running for, I don't know, like 14, 15 years now. And like, there's not really been a critical buck. So it's like, this thing probably works. It's, it's almost like a trillion dollars. <laughs> no one's dealing a, a shit ton of Bitcoin, right? So yeah, that's what we think about it. Nice, that makes sense. Um, okay, we're about 50 minutes, so we'll just do a few more questions and close up. I have to ask you just, have you been looking into the DA layers like Celestia, Eigenlayer, DA? It's such a narrative going on right now. And we're talking about what are going to be the big themes of 2024. And it keeps being like the DA layers. I believe that. Also, I feel like DA layers are super boring. So I, I don't know, like <laughs> I'd way rather invest in like applications, right? So I don't know. I don't get that excited about it. But um, how do you feel about it? One, just as DA layers as a whole, how do you think about it? And do you, sounds like no, but do you think, think that impacts the Ethereum thesis at all just because, you know, more and more roll-ups use, say, Celestia instead of using Ethereum? Yeah, so... So I'll split this up into, like, a short-term view and a long-term view. I think short-term, there's definitely going to be a lot of demand for these alternative data availability layers. And that's just simply because Ethereum will not have enough DA for its roll-ups if they want to scale beyond kind of rudimentary levels of transaction throughput. And yes, this is like inclusive of EFP four from four, like that's just simply not proprietary enough. So a lot of these roles are going to use third-party availability layers over the next like one, two years. And the beneficiary is going to be, you know, projects like Celestia and in Um As far as like longer term, it's where it becomes more challenging is that uh, for one, I think data availability in itself, I'm not, fully convinced is like a big business uh, alone. I mean, it, it's a very cheap service uh, to provide. And I wonder if like for these specialized availability layers, what that the new long-term is feature some form of settlement or at least have maybe some kind of two-way bridge where you can take the native assets, say of like Celestia, and you can bridge Tia to the roll-ups and it can be this kind of like modular money. And then the challenge is at a certain point, it starts to look very much like Ethereum and the roadmaps overlapping. So they end up being like competitors uh, in a way that I think many of these DA layers are not marking themselves as. 
they're like, oh, like we're complimentary, which is true for now. In the long term, it's not. Um, the other thing is that data availability sampling, while I think was is like a, a very important innovation, uh, long term will likely be like a feature that every blockchain has, including Solana, for example. So yes, it can be a defining feature of a blockchain right now, but over time, as like this gets incorporated to every other blockchain, it's not really as like interesting or differentiating. And like the only way that it is differentiating is if you just have like a sufficient number of light clients that are actually doing this like data ability sampling, uh, in which case that is com- kind of like competitive mode. But that's also just another way of saying that a blockchain gets adopted as a mode, right? <laughs> because obviously with blockchain adopt, there's gonna be a lot of people that are running like this. Yeah, all, all, all I was going to add to that is that really when it comes to like DA layers and, and, and specifically Celestia, I'm sure like Eigen is working towards this way as well. Um, so just moving beyond just like the Ethereum aligned L2s, um, is the idea that they're going to be able to support these new, almost like sovereign, uh, rollups or different types of rollups. And you just like the, the customizability and flexibility that you have in design. Is just that much more than what is enabled by uh, rollups that sell to Ethereum today, um, and so I, I think we're just tapping the surface as far as like what uh, can be done at the VM and the protocol layer for a lot of these networks, where they no longer have to like spin up their own validator uh, set to go do this. They their minimum viable security is simply just posting their DA to to Celestia, um, and so it just enables this new pocket of innovation and experimentation that we haven't seen before. Um, so we're starting to see like, maybe a lot of like the protocol level uh, innovations happen in an area like Celestia. And like what Ryan was saying, like that's just one of those areas where adoption for these DA layers can explode. And that has to be their their long game. Because I, I know Celestia is doing this. I'm sure Eigen's moving this way is for the actual DA component to be very elastic for demand. Uh, and that it just in the end is going to make it so like that resource is just very, very cheap. Um, so you can't really base like the long-term business and have it, you know, actually justify these massive valuations um, long-term. Definitely agree. Yeah, I think it goes back to our aggregation theory that we're talking about a little bit uh, like 10 minutes ago. Um, and by the way, I love making fun of modular money just because Celestia does have great marketing. And so I push back constantly. And I, and I think there's no way they're not going to vertically ver- vertically integrate in some way in the future. I often think it's funny in Web2 and Web2 is different than crypto. But if a Web2 company came to you like Shopify and said, we're only going to do one thing ever be like, I'm not going to invest in you like that, like one thing. No, they're going to keep adding products and features. Mm-hmm. And the Shopify example, I think, really sticks out to me because the 90% of their revenue used to come from subscriptions, and now 90% of it's from payments. But they first got the customers in, similar to DA, and then now it all comes from payment processing fees and the like Shopify checkout. So I just think Celestia has to do something like that, but I, I 100% agree with your two points. I think, uh, I don't know, is there anything you want to add to that? Or I, I have yeah. uh, one last question. So to be fair, I, I think that, I think that's like, and that's like a fair point. And mm-hmm. it's fine that these systems evolve over time once they actually test out their product in the marketplace and see what works and what doesn't or what they need to adjust. None of these systems were perfect from Genesis. I mean, I think Solana included, right? For example, you know, one thing that we all know is not going to work about Solana is just having just like these like fixed fees for transactions and that's it. 
So what did we actually end up doing after that? It's like, okay, like local fee markets. And now we're exploring the full dimensionality of like what fee markets could look like uh, on the system. And it's a better system because of it. It's like all these systems do evolve over time. Uh, and there are like, and the same thing with Ethereum, like Ethereum when it first started was this integrated system. And now it's like starting to modularize because it realizes that this might be a better way of like seeing this roadmap. And now it has like rollups and, you know, these third-party data builders and all this different stuff. So I guess like fine that it, it ends up doing that. Uh, and, and yeah, like that's, I mean, it's just, that, that's like the story of this, of this industry is we experiment we figure out what works and then. Exactly. We just. Cool. All right, guys. Got the last question for you is you're both used to work at Masari. Um, then you started this fund together, I believe. Can you kind of, I know we have a lot of researchers that listen to the show, probably specifically in Solana, but we also have people on Ethereum. And I know the research guys at BlockWorks do at least. So we've got a few. What is your, like, what was that experience? And what would your advice be to someone that is a researcher that is looking and probably thinking right now, should I start a fund? Do I want to go work in a fund? Like, what has that experience been like? Yeah. Uh, so just for clarification, my, my co-founder, Dan, has a background in uh, public equities. He's worked at Bushman Hedge Fund before. Oh, yeah, so we'll send that. We're at Masari. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, so, I guess the question is, like, what would be, I guess, advice that people were doing research? Or, like, what was it like to be on the phone? Yeah, bit, uh, yeah, a combination of both. Just, like, what was it like, that jump going from a researcher at Masari to then leading your own fund? What is the biggest difference there? And, like, what's been the hardest thing? The big difference, so, I mean, granted, like, while I was there, was definitely still like managing my own PA. So yes, I was still researching and investing. I think what's different now is that the research is far more targeted and mm-hmm. far more like investment focused. So, and there's trade-offs. When I'm at Masari, I had like, an infinite amount of time to do research on anything. And that research doesn't need to lead to like an investment decision. It can just be purely for intellectual happiness, right? Or it can be purely for like theoretical purposes. Or I can just research something that may only be relevant 10 years from now. Like maybe I'm doing some work on like ZK rollups like three years ago. And like there's like literally nothing I can do about them in public markets, right? So whereas like for, for now... Like everything is is like let's do research and like this hopefully is like actually like driving DNL for us. I think that's like one one major difference. Um, and yeah, like the, the output is also different as well. Like when we're doing research at Masari, it's yes about understanding what's going on, but it's also about understanding what's going on and being able to articulate that to like a general audience. Whereas now, the research is mostly for internal purposes. But if we are sharing it for external purposes, we're catering it to more of like an investment community. And yeah, you know what? I think like the core philosophy of Mustar research still, I think, is in the DNA of this business when we write publicly, which is mm-hmm. not only explain like what are the investment themes and, you know, how this all works mechanically, but like why it matters, which I think is like a very critical component of being able to tell a compelling story is like, what is the purpose of the, all this that we're building? Um and yeah, I think that's that's also what I think makes researching, even in this role, still exciting is that, you know what, when we do share like public theses, it's not just about, you know, making money. It also is about telling a story. And I think the storytelling is is so important for like the development of these communities long term. No question. 
Um, I, yeah, just the, the very, very, very similar, but I think there's just a more practical, uh, application that we need to bring to the whole research process, which is before, um, you go down a rabbit hole for days, um, on a lot of these concepts that were just intellectually fascinating. And it's not like we still kind of do that, but you need, you need to like bring it back out, um, and understand like, Hey, what, where is this in its uh, investment cycle or or even product cycle, and where would this make sense in 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 the larger in the larger scheme of things in the market and and dialing it back to almost like, hey, you have your your um, hundred thirty IQ thesis, and then you also have to understand the like seventy IQ thesis as well, um, and that's just something like when it, when you're doing more of like the hardcore research work. That's not necessarily something you really need to think about, but on on the public market side, that's definitely something where it comes into play. Um, and you you need to think about like how people are going to perceive this and and how is this going to play out from here, um, because both like retail users and investors play play a good role here. And so that's also why like everything in crypto tends to be very narrative driven as well, and where uh, not only being able to articulate. Um, what's going on technically, but uh, on top of that, telling the story of where not only this product, but the industry and sector at large is is heading. I think maybe like one final point out here, and this is like probably the, the biggest difference between just doing this at a fund versus doing this at a, a research shop, is that you know, when we're researchers, our only job is to do research and publish it. But being like a fund manager, research is just one of many things that you do. So you're not always dedicating as much time as you were to just doing research before. It's also, you know, making investment decisions. It's also fundraising. It's also operations. It's also managing a team. Uh, so it's like, you know, to an extent more holistic, but it is a trade-off, right? Like if all you want to do is research, like you don't do that at, at, a, at a fun anymore. But, um, you know, hopefully it's more rewarding in other ways. Um, if that's like the path you want to go down. And, you know, I, I think I made the right decision. I'm, I'm happy. Likewise. <laughs> yeah. This is kind of a, a selfish question or something that I went through. Back um, in 2020 when I was in, I was like in between, I just moved back from Sydney. I was just working in, working in crypto, aka just trading on my laptop in a cafe for like six months. And uh, it was really great, but I wasn't putting out any content in the sense that like at that point, if you're investing in crypto, like numbers just went up. So you felt pretty good about it. Like, wow, I'm actually doing good here. I'm reading all day. I'm learning a whole lot, but I wasn't putting out any content. So eventually I got myself to actually write put things out there. One, because I was trying to create a resume of sorts so people can actually see what I'm doing because you're not going to like put a dashboard of like your investment returns. But like I said, everyone was going up at the time. Um, has that changed at all how you feel? Like how do you look for feedback uh, in your current job? So when I think about it as a research analyst, like you're putting out reports, your name is on it. You might do a, like a post on Twitter. People are doing giving you feedback and there's some back and forth. Whereas I would think maybe for you guys, Sure, you see your dashboard with your liquid tokens going up and down. But if you're not writing research, you're not really getting that feedback. You're not putting things out there. Like, has that shift been different at all? Like, have you, does it feel, maybe this is too philosophical, like, does it feel a little bit more isolating at all? Because you're no longer, like, engaging as much, maybe with the community as you used to be. Uh, yeah, yeah, yes and no. So I think we still write just as much, except... And we also still do the review process just as much. It's just that it's more internal. So we're content providing feedback to each other. And then also we do you know, have different 
investors in the industry or researchers or just, just people that we speak to that we can get feedback for when we're doing diligence on an asset. Or if we're already past the diligence stage and we're just writing like a public thesis where they can help us kind of craft like a, a, a narrative. And these people are, like I said, they're, they're investors, they're researchers, they're, they're engineers, they're founders. And that's how we get the feedback now. Uh, and it can be like equally as rewarding. Uh, but you're right. I guess it, 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 the difference is that, you know, there's not as much public facing content. Uh, but I think it's fine, right? Because sometimes the public facing content like is the feedback I'm getting really valuable if it's just like, yeah, to the moon or like someone just like dunking on me because I think I'm wrong. Like I I think I prefer, you know, someone who I know and is serious, like providing like meaningful feedback on something that mm-hmm. I rather than just like releasing it to Twitter speeder and who knows what happens. I think that's that's been a lot it's just been really like condensing and, and shrinking that that sphere of influence and in, in, um who we're communicating with. Um and then I think there's also the, the standpoint of like, we like to develop a lot of these theses and research in-house so we can develop our own ideas and help them evolve from there. So in that case, like, it's not like we're getting too much influence from from outside or really uh, thinking through it from first principles in-house. Yeah, it's really good. Twitter is the source of all good and evil. It's like, it's so easy <laughs> to get lost on your Twitter feed all day because there is some really high, you know, quality content on Twitter. But that's probably like 5% of what's out there. And it's so easy to get lost in the 95. So I think overall, you guys are, uh, you're doing it right. Um, anyways, guys, thanks so much for jumping on. This is a super fun conversation. I feel like we covered a, a whole lot, you know, from Ethereum to Solana and even more. So uh, yeah, guys, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having us on. This is awesome. Yeah, thanks, Garrett. This is, this is great. Big fan of the podcast. So yeah, happy, happy to be a part of it. Glad to hear. All right, guys, we'll see you next time. All right, I've got a little ending note here. First, thank you so much for listening to the full episode. If you really liked it, hit subscribe. But secondly, make sure you sign up for DAS. This is BlockWorks' biggest institutional conference happening in London in March. I've included a link in the show notes and also a discount code. You get 10% off. Make sure to use Lightspeed10 when you sign up. All right, I'll see you there and I'll see you next time on Lightspeed. <laughs>